0: section four of Camden's compliments to Walt Whitman by various this LibriVox recording is in the public domain addresses part two Charles G Garrison Camden law natural and conventional into the structure of the temple of immortality two widely different forms of genius enter There is the genius of the architect, which embodies material elements so as to express in lasting form a single individuality, a kind of genius which lacks growth and is without vitality. Then there are the material elements themselves, materials brought to the temple, but not made of man, having their origin in natural laws, growing stratum upon stratum like all growths. Between these two types there is an essential distinction. The genius of the architect is fixed, cribbed, and confined, while the material elements of which the building is framed are capable of other and indefinite uses. This latter is the type of mind of which all world books are formed. Among the classic dramatists, Euripides and Sophocles furnished such types. Homer and Virgil among the epic poets. In philosophy, Plato in poetry the hebrew scriptures in later times goethe it is of this type of mind that Carlyle speaks when he exclaims of shakespeare "O, oh, this myriad-minded man but mr president it is rare within the lifetime of the furnisher of such material to the world that those about discover in him this immortal quality to our guest this rare distinction must be accorded, that his contemporaries see in him the myriad-mindedness of genius. If, however, there be one thing which would be denied to him, even by those who speak sincerely and lovingly, it would be the possession of any correct notion of law. If I mistake not, he has been spoken of as Walt the Lawless. Law includes such diverse ideas we have the idea of a legislative enactment. That is one notion of law. Then there are social laws, as we call them, which undertake to regulate all our private affairs for us, even our morals. And then there is another idea of law, which lies deeper than these, viz, that immutable condition of things to which, whether we recognize it or not, whether we will or not, all things that are true must conform and of which, strange to say, the least possible account is taken in dealing with the other two. Thus it happens that there has always been a conflict between the two concrete notions of law and this one great and true idea. The history of every philosophy, of every race, every religion, is nothing more, or but little more, than the history of the warfare between these two notions of the law the outward spirit of humanity always deciding for the true ideal. Hastily suggested is the attitude of Socrates in such a warfare, who still lives as the vital instinct of the philosophy of Plato. Of Gautama, today the great Buddha of three hundred millions of his fellow men, of a certain young rabbi on the shores of Galilee, whose spirit has entered into all modern civilization. All of these are exemplars of this warfare in which the true and fundamental law opposed, for the time being, the other lesser laws. What is chiefly to be noticed in all great spiritual movements is that while they fought against laws, they fought toward law. Humbly, then, should we reproach any great mind with the idea of its lawlessness. It is the special province of genius to see where the true law lies. Rightly understood, the spirit of genius is never lawless. Rather, would it befit us, in view of the transcendent vision of genius, to question humbly our own faculties, to seek for what may aid our sight toward the distant worlds he sees, before we deem in our hearts that he is gazing into vacant air. But our poet has nothing to say about these warfares of ideas in the great philosophic or religious systems. His words are not addressed to nations, not to senates, not to the municipal divisions into which people divide themselves. He speaks but to man, of whom philosophers have always delighted to speak as a little world, a microcosm, they call him. And what is the word that Whitman brings to him? What does he say to him when man knows not by which of the arbitrary laws about him he ought to guide his life? I refer not to legislative or civil laws. I mean those forces which are brought to bear on the life of man, socially, ethically. Books, creeds, the next-door neighbors tell him to do this or to do that, or he shall be condemned. In crises of his life, he finds these rules fall away from him or he outgrows them. He knows not how to test them. When weighed in the balance, they are found wanting in spiritual truth. Then comes the Spirit, which pervades every line of Whitman, and bids each man cherish himself as the temple of truth, and he will know where to find it. Whitman teaches, above all else, that man has within himself that element of the divine which is capable of placing him in unison with nature and beauty, and at one with his fellow men. In the language of St. Paul, he bids men remember that they are sons of God, in the sense that they have within them the godlike spirit which alone is capable of indefinite growth and expansion. Nothing from without Everything from within is his motto. All the criticism that can be heaped upon Whitman for deifying the temple of the body is explained by the idea that it is to him the tabernacle of that spirit of truth which he would have all whom he loves so dearly look upon as a divine heritage, that they may make the spirit and the temple which encloses it worthy each of the other. THE TEACHING OF WHITMAN IS EMBODIED IN THE WORDS OF THAT OTHER MYRIAD-MINDED POET WHO SAYS, TO THINE OWN SELF BE TRUE, AND IT MUST FOLLOW AS THE NIGHT THE DAY. THOU CANST NOT THEN BE FALSE TO ANY MAN.
1: E. A. ARMSTRONG, CAMDEN STATE OF NEW JERSEY it seems to me that New Jersey is the state in which Walt Whitman ought to live. How many are the jibes and the sneers and the slurs that New Jersey has received by would-be wits and philosophers! Serenely she has taken them all, conscious that one day justification would come and that appreciation would follow. That day has arrived. Walt Whitman has never complained because he has been unjustly condemned. Walt Whitman has never said an unkind word in answer to all the unfair and unjust and unrighteous criticisms that were hurled at him. New Jersey, therefore, is proud of Walt Whitman, and although it was not his fortune to be born within her borders, we know that Walt Whitman is proud of New Jersey a fellow-feeling makes us wondrous kind. And we, who are native-born Jerseymen, we who love our soil and love our state and love all our surroundings, sir, have learned in the years in which you have lived with us to love you. And we, your fellow citizens and your fellow state inhabitants, greet you here today and say to you, May the years that have passed bring you, in many years yet to come, rich fruits and rich returns. I am glad to extend to Walt Whitman, on behalf of all the people of New Jersey, the warmest congratulations upon the completion of the 70th year of his life. And I know that every loyal Jersey heart will join with me in wishing a continuance by many years of that life with its illustration and example of true manhood, true fellowship, true democracy, and its evidence of human love. And all will join with me in a hearty amen when I say, May those years be long measured out to the people of the country.
0: RICHARD WATSON GILDER, NEW YORK LITERATURE I have heard the murmured protests of my friend, as praise has been added to praise, but I don't know what we are going to do unless we praise Walt Whitman tonight. There was a little hint communicated that possibly it might be agreeable to you and to our guest that I should say something about American literature but you will be happy to know that I have positively refused. I do not think you are greatly interested in literature outside of Camden tonight, and I think that my best introduction would be to say I was born not far from Camden, and I am here to welcome Walt Whitman as myself a born Jerseyman. He thought I was going to give you an encyclopedia of American literature and he said to me that he did not want me to omit Cooper, Bryant, Emerson, and Whittier. So they are not omitted. In our thoughts tonight, no great names in American literature are omitted, and bright among them shines the name of Walt Whitman. But, gentlemen, it is a satisfaction to be here, also, as a literary man, as a very busy though humble worker in literary fields. You have heard Mr. Whitman praised as a man, as a good man, as a patriot, and all that, but you know perfectly well that you would have heard very little praise of Mr. Whitman if he had not been a literary man. He is a poet, thank God, and you people of Camden and Philadelphia are honoring yourselves most highly in giving this unusual tribute, this neighborhood tribute, to the living poet. Our friend, Judge Garrison, has spoken tonight of two kinds of contributions to literature, the literature of substance and the literature of form. I am a stickler for form in literature, and one thing that I admire in Walt Whitman is his magnificent form. It is one of the most remarkable things in all literature and one of the most individual. In its kind and at its best, it is unapproachable. No one can imitate with success Whitman's peculiar style. Those who have tried, men, women, and boys, have all failed. No one can do it but Walt Whitman. At the same time, the substance of Whitman's poetry pours freely into any language and carries its flood of meaning and of passion into whatever language it flows. I remember well the first great impression I ever had of Whitman's poetry. It was received in reading a review of it in a French magazine many years ago, not a great while after the war. I had seen a great deal of our war as a boy, as the son of a soldier living in camp with the Army of the Potomac, and as a soldier myself for a short time. I had seen people shot, I had seen a good deal of the hospitals during the late war. And as a reporter for a Jersey paper up here in Newark, I had traveled with the funeral of Abraham Lincoln. The only time I ever saw Lincoln was his dead face in Independence Hall over across the river. It was near midnight. A policeman let me in after the crowd had passed through, and I climbed up those steps through the window, and I came down suddenly upon that still, immortal face. Then I walked alone up to the railroad station, which was in the northern end of the town. As I walked, I heard the band coming up behind me, and the body arrived, and we were all awake throughout the night, and we saw the faces of myriads turned with tears upon the funeral train, faces of men, women, and children, all the way to Newark, where I got off and wrote my report. Yes, I saw a great deal of the war but I have read nothing about the war that carries its volume of feeling, its enthusiasm, its pathos, its picturesqueness, as does the poetry of Walt Whitman. As I say, my first impression of that was received from a review written in another language. Not long ago, another Frenchman took up Whitman's war poetry again and poured it out for his readers, and I got hold of it again, and again I was shaken like a reed in the wind. There is nothing like it. There is no description of war in verse like it, and certainly not in our language. I was asked to be impromptu tonight, but my impromptu has been a great deal spoiled by the previous impromptus. I wanted to say something very fresh and impressive on the line of our friend here about Walt Whitman's appreciation of the duality of existence. Those who look through his poetry like Dr. Johnson's old woman for the naughty words and who really know nothing about it think that he is a poet of only one phase of life. But where, outside of the Bible, is there a stronger sense of the spirit? Where is there a stronger passion for immortality, a stronger vision of the individuality of the soul, the quenchless human spirit? It is because he covers both the flesh and the spirit that Whitman reaches some of the loftiest minds of our day. He is not yet penetrated to the masses, but he will in years to come through the finer intellects of the time. They will interpret him because they feel most keenly his literary form. They feel most keenly his subtleties, the beauties of his thought and of his language. Gentlemen, in New York we are building an arch to commemorate our Washington centennial. There is a great deal of public spirit in that town of ours, and we are trying to concentrate it now upon a most beautiful and fitting memorial of the late centennial celebration. One feature of the arch is that it is to be built not only by the rich, but by the poor, by the children with their pennies, and by the millionaires with their thousands. And in the cornerstone we are going to put the names of all those people, We shall probably put there other records of the time. We shall put there some description of the centennial, perhaps the names of our president, governor, mayor, and common council. We will put there a very beautiful medal by St. Gaudens, which our committee had the honor to send forth. And some thousands of years from now, when civilization moves onward, northward, perhaps around the pole, someone will come here and under the ruins will find a record of the New York of these times. Place Walt Whitman's poetry in the cornerstone of this nation. Let some convulsion of nature overthrow these United States, then let that poetry be found. And from the lines will rise up a picture of our times, such, I believe, as nowhere else can be found.
1: JULIAN HAWTHORNE, SCOTCH PLAINS, NEW JERSEY, DEPUTY OF NATURE. The short shift in the matter of notice given me for this call is offset by the belief that this is one of those rare occasions on which the frank giving out of hearty feeling has as much a place as premeditated eloquence. And the reason, as I need not tell you, is that Walt Whitman sits here as the deputy of nature." her ambassador, accredited and approved. I have always thought of Walt Whitman less as an individual man than as a gospel. Praise of him is praise of humanity, and personal vanity is as alien from him as from Mount Washington or the Mississippi. His books show us that no one better than he has loved his fellow man, and yet we feel that the qualities in us which he finds most lovable are not the petty, personal ones, but those which belong to the race. Take for example his friendship for the greatest man of our generation, Abraham Lincoln. Great as was his personal love for Lincoln, I question if his highest affection and deepest reverence were not paid rather to the voice and hand of a destiny mightier than Lincoln's, speaking and acting through him to national ends, and because he recognized in Lincoln the heart and brain of a people working and planning through him the union and freedom of their country. It was for this and for no lesser reason that he was able to hail Lincoln as my captain, and then again, to show the breadth of the man, take at the other end of the scale his lines to a common prostitute. He entered into no question of untoward circumstances, nor into any gradations of sin, original, hereditary, or personal. But he saw her standing there as she has stood through history, the victim of man, and his nemesis. And as such he, as a man, accepted her. He saw that our universal mother nature lavished upon her as upon the most immaculate of her sisters the warmth of the sun, the freshness of the rain, the perfume of the flowers, and the rustling of the leaves. And he said to her, Not till the sun excludes you do I exclude you. It was a great saying, and the world must sooner or later give heed to it. And surely the man and poet whose sympathy can extend from the highest specimen of our times to the lowest nameless outcast is worthy of more than all the sympathy and honor that we contain.
0: Hamlin Garland, Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts the teacher. It seems particularly fitting to me at this time that a personal acknowledgment should be made of the debt we owe to our great democratic poet. In making this for myself, I am perfectly sure that I am representative of a large and increasing group of men and women both here and abroad. Walt Whitman has taught me many great and searching truths, But in the press there are two lifts of thought and feeling which rise so high they catch the eternal sunshine. These are optimism and altruism, hope for the future and sympathy toward men. If I am right in the belief that I am a representative recipient, then I am right in saying that if Whitman had done no more than teach these great emotions and live them in his life, which is better? he would be worthy of all the honor we can give him. For Walt Whitman's optimism is not the blind optimism of ignorant youth, but the jubilant flight of the stern-eyed poet, vaulting like the eagle over darkness and storms. He sees and has seen the failures, abortions, vices and diseases of our social life, and yet his sublime optimism spreads wing over them all. He has the passion of hope. As his religion has no hell, so his philosophy knows no despair. No matter how greed and avarice may shout and thunder along their granite grooves, no matter how thick the miasmic mist of bribery may rise from our political cesspools, his tumultuous and optimistic song rises above it all on level, jocund wing. He caught long ago the deepest principle of evolution of progress, which is, that the infinite past portends and prefigures the infinite future, that each age is the child of the past and the parent of the future, that nothing happens, that everything is caused, and that no age could conceivably have been other than it was. This enables him to sing, What will be will be well, for what is is well. Pleasantly and well-suited I walk, Whither I walk, I cannot define, but I know it is good. The whole universe indicates that it is good. The past and the present indicate that it is good, and henceforth I will go celebrate everything I see or am, and sing and laugh and deny nothing. This steadfast and superb faith in the universe, the most exhaustive knowledge of evil, has not shaken. Age, suffering, neglect, Prison have not power to prevail over it. This is one of the great lessons of our great poet-seer. The other great lesson which he has taught us is the passion of sympathy, the great lesson which the ages have so slowly learned, the passion which a militant age trod underfoot, but which in this new and peaceful era is to be the one consummate resplendent flower of a new and a more glorious chivalry. Walt Whitman is an absolute democrat. He knows no line of color, race, or class. There is no nature so dwarfed and darkened that he is not sung of its need, saying, This is a human soul and a brother. Which of you are ready to condemn it? Impartial as the sun which shines, generous as the ocean, his sympathy embraces all. This passion during the Civil War sent him amid the horrible hospital scenes to the heroic duties which struck him down in the middle prime of life. Greater love hath no man than this. He laid down his life for strangers. He could not fight men, but he could fight disease and face death with calm eyes. The value of his life and teaching is inconceivably great. We have substantially passed the age of militarism, and we are engaged in an industrial war. Strife and heartless cruelty still survive, but in other forms. Brotherhood and peace are still far-off blessed dreams, and the need of great teachers of sympathy and hope is pressing indeed. Let us give thanks to the day that added one more teacher of hope and sympathy. Let us take courage of the fact that out of a day of dollars, out of a din of selfish trade, out of the surf-like roar of material progress, such a singer with such a message was born, and that he has gained at last the respectful ear of his age and time. I have purposely left out of my tribute any reference to Walt Whitman's poetry as poetry, because I knew that others would efficiently touch upon that phase of his work. I am satisfied, moreover, that the American people must first know him as a man, must know the great, patient heart and life of Walt Whitman, before they will understand his stupendous books. It is our duty, we who know him, to tell his countrymen of his simplicity, grandeur, and blamelessness of life, thus hastening the time when he will be known for what he is, the strongest, most electric, most original of modern poets. In conclusion, let me say how much pleasure it gives me to take part in such a gathering as this. Praise too often builds monuments when it should build houses, raises tombs when it should have warmed hearts. Too often we neglect the living man and honor the dead poet. Praise for the hearing ear, I say, flowers of love for the throbbing sense of the living man. I present my wreath of praise, drop my bit of laurel into the still warm, firm hand of the singer, Walt Whitman, victorious at seventy.
1: Henry L. Bonsall, Camden, A Child of Adam, Revised and Improved after a Supreme Court justice has captured our garrison and invoked the art of the century's gilder in the weaving of a garland of hawthorn blossoms to bedeck the brow of our chief, when the bench, the bar, the publicist, poet, and preacher have each and all so unreservedly given testimony to the faith within them, when the grand jurors have made their presentiment, what remains for one of the petit panel— save to give in a plain and unvarnished manner some of the simpler impressions drawn, not from the consensus of opinion in this symposium, but gleaned in contact with the person and in something more than a cursory contemplation of his work. Walt Whitman has ever been to me a large and luminous presence, a pervading and persuasive personality. His work will stand for what it is worth, and that it has grown to be thought of incontestable and to a largely increasing number of inestimable value, this wonderfully representative gathering of many of the masters in art, literature, science, and philosophy abundantly attests. Aside from his great work, however, a great man attracts and rivets attention. Great in his simplicity, his naturalness transcends and triumphs over the pomp and circumstance surrounding so many other illustrious names. Our friend Gilchrist has told us of the esteem in which Whitman is held in Great Britain. And indeed, if he cannot consistently claim the merit of discovery, he at least makes a good case in showing that he speaks for a number of the distinguished literati of his realm in promoting a literary renaissance which, but for them, might have awaited a later period for its full germination and development, and this while Whitman lived obscurely in the town which now does him so much honour. We acknowledge the debt and appreciate the duty and devotion to a high ideal which made the message from our friends across the seas possible. We can only retort in kind that if we are not the original discoverers of British genius, the inspired authors of Albion have a greater host of admirers here than at home. In deference to the legal lights around me, I might have said clientage, but as, In the absence of copyright, we are accused of stealing our foreign literary ware. Perhaps our appreciation is not as substantial as our friends would have it. Still, we are not altogether parasitic, sucking the sap without imparting anything to the vitality of the parent tree. However true it might once have been that American books were not read, or that there were few or none to be read, we have swelled the volume, and improved the quality of literature amazingly of later years. We have given the world, and especially the English-speaking race, many names that were not born to die. And among them, we are glad to have the testimony of our eminent artist guest, that in the estimation of his critical countrymen, that of Whitman, like Leigh Hunt's lover of his fellow men, leads all the rest. I have never searched for a clue to Whitman's popularity in the old world or the new. To me it has seemed manifest. Those who know the work know the man. Those who know the man cannot fail to absorb the work. There is nothing magniloquent or meretricious, no guilt nor gigaws about him. He must have been born at a time when nature, disgusted with the manner which much of her handiwork had been marred by the artificial barriers to wholesome growth set up by stinted standards and stilted schoolmen, made the effort recommended to Mrs. Dombey and gave us a creation that needed no betterment and could sustain no detriment. Hence. His serene placidity when others are bothered about themselves or their neighbors, the little things of their little world, or the bigger things of the bigger world, which cursed spite ordained that they should set aright. He never quarrels with what is, and doesn't lie awake a night's bothering over what is or is not to be. He knows his place. Oh, rare knowledge! in the universal plan, and fits into his niche as nicely and naturally as though born in it instead of growing into it. It is this absence of posing and prudery, this avoidance of parade, that makes Walt Whitman so lovable. It is the connecting link with our common humanity that makes the Olympian Jove our brother and gods and mortals of the same essence. This it was that induced the coloured cook to rush out and be the first to greet our guest this evening. And this it is that makes the day labourer feel that, without abatement of reverence, he may accost him familiarly. This human critter, as Whitman calls it, as exemplified in himself, simplifies what with arrogant assumption would otherwise appear complex and confusing. His character, as said, is the key to his work, and whoso speaketh with and understandeth the right voice is already in communion, even though as widely separated anywhere about the earth as the moon from the tides. He who comes properly accredited with a sound mind and a sound body divested of pretense and pedantry "'can breathe in great draughts of space with him on the open road. "'It is this quality of comradeship with those who have no other letters "'patent than their own nobility of character "'that opens up through our anti-feudal philosopher "'a democratic vista heretofore closed through exclusive exactions "'or only to be peered at in the enchantment lent by distance.'" To him, in accordance with the laws of their environment, Cuffy is as worthy of consideration as the President. In the halls of authority he is not awed. In the presence of calamity he sobs as a child, Oh, my captain, my father. Closing the eyes of so many in their last sleep, the grim messenger to others bears to him only healing on its wings. The scent of the bloom in lilac time is no simpler than the song of the mystic voices in the redwood tree or the plaint of the bird for its mate. Like Donatello, who saw and heard in nature sights and sounds that others knew not, his soul, true to itself and its kind, garners and gives forth secrets not taught in the schools. And to such a soul the closing scene can only offer that light which Goethe, dying, vainly prayed for, his metaphysics and mysticism offering no clue to the beyond.
0: Lincoln L. Eyrie, PHILADELPHIA, THE DEMOCRAT This occasion is more than a personal tribute. It is a plain step forward in the instincts of the American people. After a century of banquets to politicians and commercial personages, it is more than gratifying to find even a handful of Americans willing to do special honor to the fittest representative of their indigenous literature. Whitman stands for what is best in American life. He is not only greater than the world yet knows, but greater than he himself will ever know. His personality, the atmosphere which envelops him like a white cloud about some mountain peak, is more majestic than anything he has yet written. Walt, says he, you contain enough, why don't you let it out then? No, not in a score of lifetimes. I knew, said Iole, that Hercules was a god the moment my eyes fell on him. When I beheld Theseus, I desired that I might see him offer battle." or at least guide his horses in a chariot race. But Hercules did not wait for a contest. He conquered whether he stood or walked, or sat, or whatever he did. Such did Walt Whitman appear to my eyes tonight on the threshold of yonder door, godlike and childlike, As with one characteristic sweep of the arm, he raised his hat above his head, greeting us with dignified familiarity, a splendid symbol of the all-conquering spirit of democracy. Whitman's democracy is the foundation upon which will rest his most enduring fame. Today we cannot put ourselves in touch with this, the most intricate riddle ever given to man. It eludes us. Huge and towering it confronts us. Another Garishanker unclimbed yet. First came the revolutionary period, a struggle of colonies rather than men for freedom. Then there was an infection of bastard democracy from France. Then began the long struggle for commercial independence, then the long struggle for the emancipation of slaves. During what period out of those tumultuous years did American people setting other issues aside devote themselves to a serious and systematic study of democracy as a political science. The delusion, now filling the general mind with the flattering belief that we have gloriously worked out a task, which in reality we have not yet begun, is appalling. It has bred, as an inevitable result, the democracy that flourishes like a rank weed in these treacherously peaceful times. It has nourished a democracy that reeks with the foulest instincts and purposes, confounding low breeding with humble birth, trampling upon the gentleman and ennobling the blackguard. But the gentleman will not slap the pickpocket on the back and play the political harlot to gain his favor. So he must stand aside and hold to his virtue, and see the degradation of a people who cannot influence their scurvy politicians, even to the building of a sewer or the cleaning of a street who can rule themselves in nothing. They can come together at a crisis, in a sort of town meeting, to patch up their long-neglected affairs. Is this democracy? Is this a guarantee of the lasting qualities of free institutions? On the contrary, we are rapidly developing a crisis which will take the shape of a cataclysm as radical as will be tremendous a conflict likely to be made up of elements absolutely novel and surprising, and that will shake the structure of this government to its deepest foundries. Then will come into play, for the first time, the marvelous genius of the poet who sang The Song of Myself and By Blue Ontario's Shore. Like a fertile land, unexpectedly revealed out of a receding sea, the whole broad territory of Whitman's faith will startle an awakening world to a new conception of his promise and his meaning. Then our children will clearly see what we could but faintly discern, that when he cries for comradeship with the loneliest man or thing, he chants the true democracy. His song is a triumphant symphony in defense of nature. All human conventions must bend the knee. A leaf of grass is loftier than a cathedral. The citizen who would be free must find all life within himself, must rule the empire of himself, being himself alone. America, if she would endure, must welcome the self-confidence rather than the self-abandonment of her people. Welcome to thee at the appointed time, O true republic, Welcome, then, and not till then, democracy. Whitman, the mortal, outstripping thee by a hundred years, moves with contented spirit toward the ivory gate, ready to sink into the arms of nature, as a child falls to sleep upon its mother's breast. Whitman, the immortal, awaits thy coming. End of section 4